You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, this is Aber here. And this is Shane. And so this is Why We Do What We Do. And um, I have some questions. We have. All right. We both have some questions, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we do. I, I think we could. I think we could. Uh, we can. We can explore this a little bit. Perfect. Yeah, I mean, I think there's something important to to understand in this topic that we have, and so to just just to set it up. I mean, I, I've I've always wondered whether there's like legitimate skepticism. I don't know if skepticism is the word. If there's legitimate like doubt that this is a real thing that happens if people believe that you couldn't get this type of effect. And so the question to begin with is, could you talk someone into putting themselves into harm's way? Like just most generically. Yeah. I mean, I wonder, I wonder if you could, I feel like, I feel like it's possible, right? Maybe like the villain from Jessica Jones. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Except maybe a little less super powery and a lot less purple. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. All right. Uh, so then to kind of piggyback on that, like, could you convince somebody to say something that isn't true? Right. Like if you can convince somebody to put some themselves in harm's way, could you convince somebody to say something that's not true? Or uh, especially like maybe, when they have nothing to gain from from saying something that's not true. Yeah, exactly. Like when they, can they just make stuff up just just to just to make stuff up? Yeah. I mean, I I would believe that that's the case. <laughs> yeah. I feel like, yeah, if, especially if somebody has nothing to gain, then what do they have to lose? Right. Like. Not only do they have something to gain, but what do they have to lose? Or not, they, not only do they have nothing to gain, I should say, but what do they have to lose either? So I guess you probably could. I would imagine it's probably pretty easy to convince somebody to say something that isn't true. Right. And so this is leading to the idea that someone might admit guilt for a crime that that person is not actually responsible for and whether or not that could happen. And if it does happen, how does it happen? And understanding that. Now, I think it was pointed out to me correctly that people will believe just about anything. So there probably are some people who believe that there's no such thing as a false confession if they're willing to believe that the earth is flat. I mean, where where are your <laughs> where are your where do you draw the line at that point? But yeah. I don't know. I think most people would be able to understand that. Like you could talk someone into putting themselves in a harm way. You could convince someone to lie when they do not gain anything from lying and in both of those situations, you are essentially you could talk someone into confessing guilt for a crime, uh, to a crime for which they're not actually guilty. Yeah, I feel like it's portrayed a lot on television, right? Like you see that a lot, where it's like um, somebody does say something or they confess something that's maybe not true. And um, I mean, you know, I I have not thankfully been in a situation where I've had to confess something that wasn't true. <laughs> you <good>. know, <laughs> I haven't shame. been placed in, I haven't been interrogated or anything like that, but I think it's important to kind of, as we start digging into this, look at if this is something that we can prove to be true, which I believe that it is. And there, I think there's plenty of science that would support this. It, how does somebody get to that point? And, uh, and right. we can actually talk about that, what that looks like uh, either through some kind of coercion, uh, mental disorder or incompetency, of those accused. So I think that there are a lot of different factors that can go in and actually can be, um, you know, leveraged against that person when you start talking about getting them to to confess something that maybe isn't entirely accurate. Yeah. Yeah. We'll totally get into some of that. And you would think that someone who is innocent of a crime would never confess to a crime for which they're not guilty. But the research does show that there is a breaking point at which you will start to see people um, confessing to crimes for various reasons that we'll go into, and that that is that is something that happens. And so the sort of the question we're asking here is, why does this happen, or how does this happen, and how frequently this happens? What are the what's the process by which this takes place, and maybe even how we can try and avoid setting up situations in which this happens? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think that there are, I mean, I think that you can see this a lot. Uh, I have kids and I, and I could see this a lot where, you know, in, in the face of certain contexts that, um, you know, they may, uh, they, they may make some stories up. They may make some stuff up to get out of getting in right. trouble or any, all kinds of stuff. So um, I think that we see it kind of in our daily lives, but there are a lot of processes that as simple or as, um, you know, as conceptually simple as they might be, can be pretty complex and actually can be pretty harmful. Yeah. So let's, let's dive into 
the beginning of the process. And if we think about, let's approach this at least at first, because I think we're going to change gears a couple of times. But at first, thinking about the idea of a false confession as a lie, essentially lying about something that you have done that isn't true. Um, how do you induce lying? Because I want to go back to the to what we brought up in the episode that we did on the truth and lying, and that words don't have any inherent meaning that is true or false. They're, they're just words, right? We assign the value of true or false based on how those words correspond to the context of the situation, more specifically to how we have learned to interpret that correspondence as either being an accurate correspondence, a one-to-one correspondence, or something that varies from that, in which it might be then described as a falsehood or a lie or something like that. And another important point inside of that is that our memories are are very malleable, and this is also something that's come up before on the show, that when we are we're remembering something, that is, we're interacting with some kind of memory cue out in the world, and then that triggers a whole, you know, there's there's a whole process by which we biologically interact with that cue, but we actually um, recreate that memory every time we interact with it. So, or, and, and the, the function of the cue for that memory so that it shifts a little bit. And so our memories are actually very unreliable. They're malleable. They can be shaped. And so they can be changed with enough cues to shift them in a totally different direction from where they were. And actually the effects, uh, the amount of effort it takes could be kind of small to actually get relatively significant changes that happen relatively quickly. Yeah, I mean I I know that you know there's there's a joke in in our family that I have a steel trap for a memory cuz I will be able to recite stuff and it's maybe just I'm just more confident in what I'm saying. <laughs> who who knows how accurate it is, but I might just say it with enough confidence and gusto that they don't there argue with me. <laughs> so, but I think it's it's we're kind of getting into that is like uh in in talking about memory being malleable and all that and and talking about words being true. You can actually arrange a context so that uh for that particular context certain words are true or they're accurate or they have that point to point correspondence, yeah. right? So even though they wouldn't be another more common context, you can kind of start digging into this idea that if you arrange the environment or arrange the context in a certain way, then you can make just about anything you say true. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the idea that someone would say that they did something that they didn't actually do, just as you said, you could make it so if they said, yes, I did it, in that particular circumstance, what they're saying yes to does correspond to their words. So it, they're then essentially telling the truth, exactly how you said it. That's right. Yeah, and I think you I think you see this a lot um, right now, and I'm not going to take a huge stance, but I think kind of looking at the political climate, how there are certain things that words are defined as true and untrue, and you've got fake news and quote unquote fake news, or you've got like, you know, that back and forth, right? In that discussion, like how do you assign what's true in like this context that's kind of being formulated, this narrative that's being formulated to discuss like truth and lying and all that fun stuff. So it's, it's interesting to see kind of how like both sides of the coin could possibly be accurate depending on how you conceptualize it or contextualize it, I guess would be the word. <laughs> yeah. So part of what goes into this technique will break down a little bit more, but as you sort of mentioned with with your family and you sort of just speaking with confidence that if you were to talk to someone who's in a situation where they're being accused of a crime, regardless of whether or not they're guilty, actually, if you can if you approach it with that confidence of simply calmly insisting, oh, you're guilty. Like it's obvious that you're guilty. We know you're guilty. You did it. Like that that's just what it is that creates a context where that becomes the thing that's true, at least for the person asking the question. And that becomes the dominant context inside of that conversation. And so if you simply inside of that sort of confidence, then assume and simultaneously insist that any information or statements that are provided that would be contradictory to what has now been set as the precedent for being true inside of that conversation that that those contradictory statements have to be false because they're not in correspondence with what the criteria that that person who is speaking has set for what's being true. That really can help solidify that narrative that the accuser is creating and then weaken the person who's being accused, weaken their understanding and their belief in themselves in their own narrative, which runs contradictory to this other one because that person's approaching that is just simply that that's just how it is. You know, it's just 
I'm trying to think of some. I was to go with something like low stakes. Be like you, something that was stolen. You know, they're maybe uh, talking. To, I don't know. They probably don't even interrogate people who stole something. But let's just <laughs> let's just say that they're like broke into a store. Maybe or it was with a with a gun. That that might be a situation. But so maybe they catch someone who has the same profile, and they're like, y- "Well, y- you were there. We have you on camera as being there. You you stole it. We saw you stealing it." So you just need to tell us what you did and why you did it and what you did with the things that you took. And they're like, I, I didn't steal it. And they're like, but I mean, that doesn't make any sense because you, you did. Like, we know that you did. So like, there's, there's no point in spending time talking about things that you did other than that. Like, let's just figure out where you hid the things that you stole and, and why you did it in the first place. And where, where'd you put the gun that you were using? And like, if you wear them down long enough with like that kind of narrative, then eventually, and again, approaching it as the like that's just what it is, that's just the truth, then that is one part of what might begin to shape that the accused person's story shifting. You're sort of undermining their own confidence in their part of the story. Right, and what ends up happening is certain words and and certain phrases and and all that. Um, and, and kind of the person's memory gets really foggy, right? So it ends up here, it kind of, I, I imagine the process goes like this. You start doubting yourself, right? Somebody's telling you that this is what's going on. I saw this what's going on. Just confess. And you do it over a long period of time. And you start doubting, hey, this maybe my memory's not so reliable. Maybe I did do it. You start having those thoughts, right? Yeah. And then as you start like, okay, and you, you have those phrases or those words where you go, oh, well, maybe I didn't. And the person that's accusing goes, yeah, maybe you didn't. We know you didn't. Like, you're absolutely right. So why don't you just talk to us? And then they start getting, well, you know, they start praising and they start rewarding those specific phrases and those specific that specific terminology. And ultimately what happens is it gets shaped up, right? Like it gets changed to this narrative where you go from, I, I've never even been in a crate and barrel, but now I've <laughs> apparently stolen everything out of the crate and barrel and I have to tell you where I've hidden all the furniture. So, you know, so it kind of turns into one of those things where the accuser ends up gradually over time with like some praise and some rewarding and some and some confirmation of stuff. The accuser actually shapes up the narrative of the accusee. Right. And they're also going to sort of try and sympathize with them. It's going to be part of it. Or to get into this all when you sort of break down the, the, the full technique, but part of this also is the like, hey man, like I, I totally get it. I I would have done the same thing if I were in your situation. I could totally understand why you would have done that. It makes perfect sense. And so start to give them sort of a way out by creating that context of you can tell me. You can tell me these things. Like I understand like it's you're not a bad guy. You're not you're not a bad person for doing this thing. It's just you were in a circumstance where that was just the option that made the most sense to you and and, and that just sucks. And everybody lost in that situation. And by sort of approaching in that way, you you're hitting it from a lot of different angles. And as you said, they sort of sort of shape up the the kind of language they want to hear by only acknowledging that those things that sound like an admission, and also creating that escape of of not being combative. Of we're on the same side here. Just a, a thing that sucks that happened. Just need you to tell me what happened, and and then can confess that you're the one who did it, and and, and then we can all go home. And we can all go home exactly. <laughs> so yeah, sort of it offers them an out. So you get both of the the access to a reward and escape from a crummy situation in this context that's created. So there is a relatively well known confession technique. Let's call it an interrogation technique that is uh, supposed to get confessions, and and so you might call it like how to get a confession in ten easy steps, and we could throw in there also how to get a false confession in ten easy steps, and we'll go over a few of the packaged interrogation techniques that exist, which is to say that there are like sort of uh, boxes that you check off when you're doing an interrogation for how to go about doing it in a way that's likely to get a confession. Um, or likely to get the information you need, depending on what your goal is there. So let's jump into this first one, and the one that's probably the most important here, and this is uh, called the read technique. All right, and so the read technique was created by a gentleman named John Reed. So John Reed was a polygrapher, and in 1955, he had actually obtained a confession um, using this read technique. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about how um, it ended up being a false confession later. But here, we we actually saw that he implemented this technique and got this 
got somebody who was not guilty to confess to a crime. And so with, through this technique that we're going to cover in these steps, he was able to start packaging this this particular technique for um, for gaining a confession. And it ended up in particular, this the first one was actually a false confession. Yeah, well, and that's the one that sort of heightened him to fame so that he was at a status where he could package this technique and people would use it. And this is, as far as I could find, still one of the most widely used techniques in North America. And this is structured as an accusatory process. So you go in, just as we talked about before, with the position that you know your suspect is guilty. You are treating them as if they're guilty. You are telling them they're guilty. You're not there to necessarily obtain information. You are there to obtain a confession. And I think that's an important point in understanding why you get some of the outcomes you get in this process. And this is largely going to start off as a monologue, which is to say that the person who is doing the interrogating, they're going to be speaking almost the entire time. You don't want your your suspect to talk unless they are confirming your accusation. So you mostly want to keep them quiet and listening, at least initially. Right. And so... What's, could you imagine that? Like, could you imagine go like you get arrested and somebody's just monologuing the whole time? <laughs> no, I just fall asleep. Yeah, yeah. So I can't. I can't handle that. So, so what's what's interesting about this is that I haven't seen any of the data on this in particular, but this technique claims to get a confession eighty percent of the time. So that is a lot. That is a that is that is a really high success rate. Now, now I don't know from this, but I'm wondering if that would imply that. 80% of the time they have the right suspect in the first place. Right. That, or 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 is this or do you think this this is suggesting that 80% of the time that they're guilty that they get a confession? That's that's what I would want to know. Like that was, I was getting ready to say like I I wonder what that data looks like. Are we talking about accurate confessions? Are we talking about, you know, accurate ultimately like confession to conviction ratio? Like what are we actually talking about when we talk about the 80% confession? I mean, maybe it's just like, hey, I get somebody to admit they did something wrong 80% of the time. Yeah. Which again, if that was the case, it's like 80% of all interrogations end in a confession. That would imply that 80% of them were people who were the correct suspect in that situation. And I have a hard time believing that right <laughs> off the bat, the first person found is the correct suspect 80% of the time. Right. I mean, obviously a good chunk of the time that could be the case, but 80% seems high. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they're just that good at their sleuthing that most of the time the detectives who pulls someone in, they're really confident that's the right person. And so they really, I don't, I, I don't know. It just, that's, that's, that number seems surprisingly high to me. Yeah. And we're going to, and we're going to go back to that. Like how good are they at sleuthing? Uh, when we talk about <laughs> how not, maybe not so good at their sleuthing they were. So, so kind of getting into this technique, it's my understanding there are three phases. There's a fact analysis, a behavior analysis interview and nine steps of interrogation with a consent form, a quote unquote consent form. Is that correct? Yeah, and they they're actually gonna ha- they're gonna start with a consent form and they're gonna end with a consent form, and that actually it, it sort of just sets the the context for the conversation to begin with, and it seals the deal at the end, because first they have to get them to consent to be interrogated, and again they're gonna treat this as this friendly like we just gotta ask you some questions. This is just for us to obtain some information, so this is a form saying that you'd be willing to participate in this with us while we ask you some questions so we can figure out what's going on here. Even though they phrase it like that, they're again, they're not trying to get information. They're trying to get a confession. And then at the end, a form that says, we want you to sign this form that says that we treated you fairly, that you were asked, that you were treated with respect, that you were asked reasonable questions. And so that uh, they can then turn around like this. This is just like really covering their themselves from all angles and go in court and say, this can't possibly they confessed and they even then said that we treated them fairly like they said that their confession is real which i think is kind of a brilliant move on their part yeah i mean it definitely it definitely uh ties up any of those loose ends that anybody could go back and be like well they were coerced and you can be like well they said they weren't you know right exactly yeah so okay so let's talk about these nine steps so the first one is that you're going to confront this person directly right or they would not you you should not go out and start interrogating people um the <laughs> listeners right <laughs> so, yes. yeah so let me start with that before i get, okay do not go out and inter- interrogate people <laughs> please this is not we're not giving you instructions on how to interrogate we're telling you this is how people sometimes do this right okay so first you're for gonna your get, information for only. your information only not for <laughs> practice uh <laughs> just just for liability's sake we're covering ourselves <laughs> okay yeah. so 
The first step is confront the person directly, and you're going to begin with a firm statement that the suspect is guilty. So basically, you're just going to come right at the per- at the person and say, "We know you're guilty." Right. The next step is that, and again, this goes back to this idea of the monologue is to prevent them from practicing statements that are denying involvement or accountability, and this this just goes to the overall st- structure of. We want to shape up their language toward saying, like, yes, I did it, and anything like that, anything that is in agreement with them. So the second step or second sort of box to check on this, if you will, is prevent them from saying anything that would be them living into the narrative that they're not guilty, if that makes sense. Yeah, so so you don't give them a chance to even, like, make an argument to the contrary. You're saying, I know you're guilty. I'm going to make sure that you don't get a chance to deny that. And then the third step is going to be that I'm going to offer a sympathetic series of possibilities so that they don't get a chance to even deny it. Instead, they're going to get an opportunity to answer a question that implies that they are guilty. So for example, right. I might go, I know you're guilty. You don't have to tell me what's going on, da 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 da, da bubble, you so on and so forth for 15 minutes of monologuing. And then I say, were you planning on doing this or did it just happen? Right. Yeah, that's yeah, exactly right. That they that that way they have to answer the question in a way that implies that they're guilty and that just gives you something to build off. So you're sort of forcing their next response to be in again moving toward what might be an admission of guilt. The next step as you mentioned was uh, to keep them on the defensive by trying to undermine their self-confidence. And and this is sort of what we began with when we talked about you want to undermine their memory, you want to undermine their claims, you want to get them doubting themselves as much as possible. Yeah. And then as, as that as that goes on and that person starts kind of like developing that like they're 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 losing their footing on their on their disc- or like on their story, you know, they're starting to have a hard time, maybe even like their memory starting to get fuzzy, maybe you're even starting to convince that person. Then you wanna actually start talking about giving them a persuasive argument for telling the truth. Hey, if you just come out and tell us, you know, we can all go home, I'm tired, you're tired, you can get some rest, you know, hey, you know, if you tell us now and it does, and you may not have to go to trial, we can just kind of handle this all here and just kind of you know, giving them the pros and cons of like why you should just come forward. Yeah, that seems wrapped up in this next step, which is the alleviating fear of of engaging in of confessing to their to their guilt, which I think is both a a bit of this like you're not necessarily going to get in trouble. Like we just need to, it, things will go easier for you if you just admit. And so, if you think about someone who is guilty who's sitting there being interrogated and they're like, if I confess, that means that like all my rights are gone, bad things are going to happen. And acknowledging that that's something that could be the case, the person who's doing the interrogating is going to try and and eliminate that fear by making them feel like every you're safe to confess. Things will go better for you if you confess. It, this is a safe place for that and, and try and eliminate whatever fear there might be. Yeah, and, and another way that they kind of in, in going into one of the other steps is is they actually start looking at um, compliments. Like they start going, "Hey, you're not a bad guy. Hey, hey, you know, I know you're a nice man. You're probably good to your family. Da da da. You would never do anything like this. It happens sometimes. Like, and you start kind of building building rapport with that person, almost like that like a like a that that good cop archetype yeah. right like you go hey exactly. it's okay hey you know what I got you a cup of coffee. I know you, I know you're having a hard time right now. Let's just talk about this. Hey, I know you're a good guy. Right. And the interrogator is going to be specifically looking for signs to suggest that their their suspect is kind of buying into it, that they're going along with their narrative, maybe slight nods or they're starting to cry is actually a really common one. Or they might be they might even say something like, I don't know. And like that might be the first step toward it, whatever. But anything that looks like it's a sign toward them moving to confess, you want to to latch onto that immediately and treat any signs of emotion as a sign of guilt. Although I also think, I didn't see this in here specifically, but I really think that if you had someone who was reacting to it with no emotion, that you'd also look at that as a sign of guilt because they're like, you know, you clearly don't care about the situation. You must be a psychopath, therefore you're guilty type of, of thing. And this is sort of a, 
between a rock and a hard place situation where no matter what you do, whatever you do will be evidence against you. And I, so I listened to one true crime podcast and it strikes, it strikes me that sometimes in there you'll have someone who is either saying that whoever was uh, the person who was convicted of a crime is innocent. Most of the time they're talking about the ones that they feel are guilty, but how often they'll bring up something that they do as being really guilty behavior. That to me sounds like I can imagine anyone doing this in this situation and then someone else calling it guilty. Right. They seemed like there was one where someone like this, this person seemed way too upset that their spouse was dead. Like someone might be upset, but not that upset. Or someone seemed really cold and distant, like they didn't really care that their spouse was dead. It's one of the situations where, again, no matter what they do, it appears to be a guilty emotional reaction. And that to me isn't evidence. And I have a problem with that being treated as evidence because you're reading meaning into someone's emotional reaction. And there are, and people react to things in different ways for various reasons. So I just don't like that as a, a strategy. Yeah. I mean, it, it just leaves, it leaves a lot up for interpretation. And I think that's the thing is like, it depends on that person's, you know, go back to like the ideas of learning history and stuff that, that accuser or that interrogator is going to go ahead and create a narrative around that or create a context around that to fit their narrative. Yeah. Right. They're going to say, and, Oh, this person's acting way too ridiculous. So obviously right. they're just faking it. And then anything that's ambiguous then is able to fit inside that narrative and have an explanation. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So we've gone through all these steps, right? So we've confronted this person. We don't let them deny their involvement. We have forced their choice of, of how they answer questions. We've kept them defensive. We've persuaded them to tell the truth. We've alleviated their fear. We've built rapport and we've watched for these signs. Now, once we see these signs, we're going to move in and we're going to get this confession, right? And this is that other that other signed consent saying, not only did you, are you confessing, but that we treated you fairly and we treated you with compassion and reason and whatever they want to say, but they're going to get in and get the signed confession that's going to be basically their admission of guilt. Right. Yeah, exactly. And so move, moving in for the kill, you get that that confession. So, yeah, going back to, as you said, from the the first sort of landmark case inside of this that launched John Reed into stardom and, and got his technique out and into the world, it turned out, as you mentioned, to be a false confession. Uh, the man who was who confessed to the crime was not actually guilty and the and was awarded five hundred thousand dollars. Uh, from that false confession, and this is in you know, 1950s money, so this was uh, this would be 4.6 million dollars today. So there was kind of a big deal, and nevertheless, this continues to be again a widely used interrogation technique. So when we we kind of talked about this this these steps and 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 kind of what this looks like and and how sometimes these wrongful confessions can come out. Going back to that case in 1955, there's a pretty recent case of this happening um, and it's the story of Juan, Juan Rivera and how he was wrongfully convicted several times for the same crime, which is yeah. a little we we kind of were discussing this a little bit how um, it doesn't really make sense that he was charged as many times as he was for this, but he was wrongfully convicted several times for the same crime and was subject to this read technique yeah so the first two times that he was convicted he confessed and it was a horrible crime that we don't need to necessarily get into but involved an 11 year old girl and the uh, he was convicted on the basis of confession and uh, he later claimed he was coerced also and this was in 1992 uh, about 12 years later when DNA evidence was much more common and easily obtained DNA ev- evidence also exonerated him from the crime and then the third time that he was convicted of this crime it turned out that there was blood on his shoes that belonged to the victim which seems like a smoking gun until they pointed out that those shoes were not even available to be purchased until well after the the death of the victim which suggests that that had to have been planted evidence because there's no way that her DNA could have gotten on those shoes since those <laughs> shoes didn't exist yet. Right. And furthermore that they accidentally placed the the DNA of the person who actually did commit the crime on the shoes as well because they found someone else's uh, DNA on the shoes that belonged to to a man who probably was the person who committed the crime. So they were doing all kinds of wrong stuff here, but he ended up being awarded $20 million um, in a, from this wrongful conviction. Now, this technique, because it, and it has been widely criticized for its, I guess, tendency to potentially 
get false confessions. There are several countries that won't allow it. Apparently, Germany and Canada do not allow the read technique as part of interrogations. And if it's used, it's considered uh, inadmissible evidence for those. So other countries have recognized the problem with this technique. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's an important precedent. Like uh, that, you know, if you, if you're seeing that on, on more than one occasion that a, uh, a technique like this is resulting in false confessions it immediately, especially in a court of law makes it so untrustworthy, I guess you could say, or, you know, anything like that. Like it leaves enough doubt that it shouldn't really be admissible anyway, kind of like polygraph tests and all that. Yeah, and what's problematic, too, I think, for everyone involved is that once that there's a confession on the books, there are some people who will never believe anything else. And that record will follow the accused person around forever. Like right, that's, exactly. That's all that, yeah, that's all that they get. Like, someone did their job incorrectly, got this person convicted after coercing them into admitting guilt when they didn't do anything wrong, and they're going to suffer for it for the rest of their life. That's a That's a huge deal. That, that that sort of thing happens. Yeah, so I don't know. Maybe don't use the read technique. <laughs> <laughs> so we've covered the read technique and, and its controversy and all that, but there are a couple alternative methods in um, gaining confessions. One that we're going to talk about real quick is called the peace method. It's an alternative method for um, gaining confessions and doing interrogation. And peace is, a, is, is an acronym, and it covers a few different steps. So the first step is preparation and planning. And basically what the interviewer should be doing is they should have a written interview plan and focus on specific objectives of the interview, why they're doing the interview, what they're trying to gain from it. As part of the plan in preparation for the interview, the interviewers may actually consider things like visiting the scene or location of the interview, getting an idea of what the environment layout looks like, considering how long the interviewee is going to, has been in custody. Uh, that, Cause that's a factor that could, um, you know, could build into the, how they confess or what they were willing to confess and points necessary to provide the offense or provide a defense for the particular questions that the interviewer is asking the interviewee. So the next step is called engage and explain. So this is the E, double E, double P, double E, I guess. <laughs> and and this one, this has to do with having, is building rapport. There's some active listening. So you're going to be basically listening to what the person has to say, nodding your head, letting them know that you're there, that you are understanding what they're saying. You want to explain to them like the process of going through the law system, essentially, and I think as well as the interrogation process, what they're going to be talking about. Essentially, it sounds like this step is being relatively upfront about them in terms of what to expect inside of the the whole process of being arrested, being charged, the interrogation, all of that is that you want to keep sort of get them on the same page and treat them more as sort of allies, if you will. Yeah. And then that kind of leads into um, some of the specific structure and process that falls in the uh, the account section of this or A. So when you get into the account portion, you're actually talking about the interviewers are using specific questions, appropriate questions, and trying to obtain the interviewee's account of events. Now, uh, what's really interesting about this is is it this allows the interviewee to actually describe what's going on. And the questions that are being presented are free of jargon. So they're not going to walk in using a lot of technical jargon, a lot of technical language, a lot of legal jargon, because they want to get a really clear and precise account of what the interviewee might have experienced or what they're going through. And it actually goes further and says, don't use multi-part questions because there can be some confusion because they may answer one question and not the other, or they may answer questions in part. Um, so they, the only time that you would really use those or even leading questions would be as a last resort. So they really want to get an idea and an account of what's going on with that particular interviewee. Not that this is meant to be even remotely similar, but I've also found that when interviewing people for the podcast to not ask multi-part questions yeah. uh, or to generally avoid them, it, it's I think it's confusing for the listener and for the person who's answering the question. And I know that for myself, I don't like necessarily being asked multi-part questions because usually what will happen is I'll get to answer one part and then the conversation will get derailed. And I'll be like, well... I only started with that part because it was the first thing that you asked. The important part was the last thing that you asked, and now we're not even getting to it. And so I think that that can be frustrating for everyone. Yeah, and then you hear that that phrase. Does that answer your question? Right. <laughs> 
No. <laughs> no, it doesn't. I'm sorry, because I asked you three. All right, so we, we're got, we've gotten through the P part of this, if you sound out the acronym. So it's time to, to close up with peace, the, the C in, <laughs> in peace, which stands for closure. And the point of the closure section of this is to actually have a resolved conversation so that you avoid, it doesn't just come to an abrupt end, you avoid having it feel incomplete, that sort of thing. And so part of this, the recommendation is that the person who's doing the interviewing or interrogating will summarize that conversation conversation, the person's account of that conversation, sort of like, uh, let me let me say this back to you and see if this sounds correct, that I heard this the way that you meant it. And also to allow that person to make any clarifying remarks or ask any questions that they might have that might also yield more information. And then to wrap it all up, because you would think the closure should be the last thing, but there right. is still another letter in that acronym and it's, and we're talking about evaluate. So interviewers at this point in time should evaluate the interview and they actually do this in three parts. First, they're going to identify and assess whether or not the interviewee's accounts fit the investigation. Does it make sense in the context? B, they're going to determine if they need to do anything else. Like, do they need to ask further questions? Do they need to interrogate anybody else? Do what, what's their next step? Right. And then the last step, and I think this is probably, a, this is a really interesting one. I think it turns the lens back on the interviewee or the interviewer, I'm sorry, turns the lens back on the interviewer and they re- reflect on their performance. Like how well did they interview? Did they did they find anything that might've been coercive? Did they find anything that might be problematic or lead to any sort of bias within the interview? I like that you bulleted that as first, B, and last. <laughs> so it's like did, every, did I do that? Did. <laughs> every step was different from the one before it. First, B, but, and last. <laughs> yeah. that's, how, that's how we use English, everybody. We just... Uh, we say whatever thing can go in whatever place, and it's fine. It was, it was just in strength of my repertoire. It's fine. Yeah, it's all good. <laughs> so I think, conceptually speaking, why might this method be effective, and why might this be preferable to the read technique? And first, I, I think that I'll note that what this technique does, that based on understanding sort of how people are going to react to to situations where they're being interrogated in the first place. I don't think that this technique isn't going to prevent someone from lying and saying that they're not guilty when they are, necessarily. But what I think that it might do is because this starts with the facts and the point of this is to create space for a dialogue to occur, it's going to allow the person who is there being interrogated to volunteer more information than they would have necessarily liked to if they were guilty and to provide really important exonerating evidence for themselves if they are not guilty. And that that way the cops are the, the people who are doing the interrogating, what they're getting out of an interview style like this is information maybe a confession, but mostly information. And the information could lead to a confession or could lead to a conviction, whatever it is, that this becomes more of evidence because it there's nothing inside of this that even implies coercion. Like There's no step in here says, make them feel like they're not confident in themselves. Don't give them a chance to defend themselves. This is specifically structured to be a dialogue where they get an opportunity to speak. And the one step of the read technique that I think is is probably the most appropriate in terms of how to get someone to open up is the sympathetic angle, which I think is appropriate to, to treat someone with kindness and sympathy. You're more likely to get more information. And if you set it up so you're not asking leading questions, but you're asking open-ended questions and listening carefully, you're going to get really useful information that is as accurate as possible rather than giving them forced choice options where their only response is to admit that they're guilty to something, whether or not they are. So I think that's part of it. Yeah. And I think, I think if you compare this method to the read method too, I think it's, it's what's interesting about this is you're not walking in and because to me, the way I read the read method is that you're walking in and you're monologuing and you're just kind of like flying by the seat of your pants. Maybe you don't have as uh, like, you're kind of just like throwing stuff at a wall and seeing what sticks, right? I'm going to throw the sympathy thing. I'm going to throw, I'm going to say whatever I need to. I'm going to interpret based on emotional responses that ter- determine whether or not that person's guilty here. You're creating, like, you're not necessarily creating a narrative. You're providing kind of like, here are the facts. Here's, here's where we have the holes. Can you fill in these holes? And then at the end of it going, you know what? We've done our best. Let's see if, and I think that the reflect piece on their performance is, is the piece that really sticks out to me here is like, you can go back that interviewer is going back and saying, 
Did I do what I was supposed to do? Is there anything that could have influenced a discussion or an answer or a commentary here? And if there is, what can I do to course correct that if that's a concern that I have as part of this this information gathering process? Right. Okay, so let's briefly summarize this last one called the kinesic interview um, as a style for doing these interrogations. And this one, I think, is probably the most related to the idea of the the what's that TV show? The like behavior analysis unit, like is it CSI or something like that? Uh, it's um oh god, Criminal Minds. Oh, is it Criminal Minds? Okay, yeah, Criminal Minds, the behavior analysis units, because the idea of the kinesic interview method is to look at to try and be a human lie detector you want to look at their body language and the way that they structure their words and you're trying to read into the the their behavior as as providing information whether or not they're volunteering it with their words and so this does have some similarities to the read technique in a way and the whole idea of this kinesics is nonverbal communication and so essentially the interviewer is trying to observe and analyze. And in this case, analyze, we mean interpret with wild abandon. Um, (laughs) (laughs) the, the, The subject's behavior and try and by doing so suss out whether or not they're being truthful or deceptive. And so they they sort of describe the four fundamental stages of orientation, narration, cross-examination, and resolution. And really just trying to, again, the sort of reading body language of like, oh, you looked up and to the left means that you're lying. And I, I used to do this thing with uh, my Psych 101 class because, of course, everybody's heard that, that you can't, if you look up and to the left and you're lying, if you look up and to the right, you're telling the truth. And so I'd have people, I'm like, all right, I think it's up to the left, whichever one it is. I'd say like, all right, look up and to the left and tell me a lie. Now, while you're looking in that direction, tell me the truth. And then say <laughs> so like, oh, look. You can it's it is physically possible for you to lie while looking in a direction that would imply truth. <laughs> it's funny too. There is actually a really good episode on Criminal Minds that they do specifically go over this interview technique. Do they? And it's it's really, really good. Um the episode itself is really good, but you go back and you're kinda like, there's no real science in that. Yeah. Like it, it makes you believe that there's science oh, in it, yeah. but you're kinda like, mm. Like you kind of get like I will be really skeptical of it. I'm kind of like I don't know about that. So yeah. we talked about those four steps: the orientation, narration, cross examination, and resolution. So the investigator that's asking these questions in this interview will use this information and use information gathered in the first phase, which is the analysis phase, to actually tailor investigation techniques or interrogation techniques. And, and so those techniques in, are individualized to that subject that is the the subject of the interrogation. Like the focus of the interrogation is going to have a a unique interrogation uh, experience compared to somebody else who may be interrogated using this technique. Right. They talk about it being tailored to their individual personality type, and they're going to specifically try and confront what they call the negative response emotional states to, I think, be more accusatory by reacting to that person's behavior as implying intent or meaning or something like that. So inside of this technique, there is there is a general principle that nothing that a person says or does is definitive proof of truth or falsehood, which I can get on board with. However, there are also some general approaches inside of this technique that essentially their assumption is that people can lie with their verbal behavior, but they have a much more difficult time lying with their nonverbal behavior. And that's why they rely on those kinesic signals to provide subtle cues and hints about what that person is really saying. And another part of this interview, this interview style is the sort of uh, attack and denial that's similar to the read technique to create a bit of a context for shaping that person's type of responses, although I don't think that they would say that they do it that way or that they use it that way. And that the interviewer is frequently bringing up any evidence that they have, real or circumstantial, back into the conversation to keep it on track with sort of why they're accusing that person and why they're there. So I think that the overall take home from this is that you are from this particular technique is that the situation that's created is similar to the read technique and that it it implies that you can read human behavior not meant to be a pun with read uh, unintentional <laughs> read read human behavior to discern the truth and really just sort of looking for those truth and falsehoods so that you can 
tailor the style of the interview to get the most from that person, which, again, in this case, I don't necessarily think means getting tr- uh, truthful information, but getting them to say things that may be the things you want to hear. I would guess, based on the way that this is described, it sounds really easy for me to come in, for someone to come in who has a bias in terms of their assumption of this person's guilt, and then look for the signs of it in their behavior and and claim that that's evidence of their guilt. So I, I'm, I'm a little more skeptical of this one. So far, my favorite one is the peace technique. Yeah, I feel like that one's the most objective one. Um, it doesn't require a whole lot of interpretation. Yeah. It doesn't uh, it, it doesn't allow or doesn't really uh, have like a, a built-in coercion mechanism yeah. as opposed to the other two. So I was just having a thought while you're talking about that. I wonder if Reed from Criminal Minds is named after the Reed technique. Whoa, mind blown. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. All right. So we've talked about false confessions a lot. We've been talking talking about like some of the techniques, but I think it's important to also understand that there are types of false confessions, which I didn't know. Um, going into this. So this was something that I thought was really interesting is, is that they've actually identified and classified three different types of false confessions that within this framework are really important to recognize. Right. So there are voluntary false confessions, compliant false confessions, and internalized false confessions. So let's just go through each of these in turn and just sort of break them down real quick. So for voluntary, these are those types of confessions in which people claim responsibility for crime they did not commit without any prompting. And I think this one's super interesting. These are the, the kind of people who call in and be and, and say, I, it's me, I did it, even though nobody even when in and accuse them. These often occur in these high profile cases. Oftentimes people who are definitely innocent even have alibis and have no means or way of having committed the crime that they'll voluntarily confess. And the assumption for these people is that this is based on a intense need for, and they call it a pathological need for attention. Um, also there are people who they sort of feel guilty all the time. And so in a way they're seeking punishment and so they they it's sort of a form of self-punishment in a way. And there's a hypothesis that they might possess feelings of delusion and therefore guilt about a particular case. And for some people, there might be the perception of tangible gain out of this, especially if they are protect if they feel like they're protecting someone else. So there's a lot of reasons for these voluntary ones that occur. This is this one was really interesting for me because I've worked with uh, kind of going back to the idea of pathological need for attention or like the problematic behavior around attention. I used to work with some individuals who would actually seek medical attention. Yeah. Um, when they were injured or they were or they would actually like harm themselves to seek medical attention specifically. Like I worked with a young man who would pull his teeth out yeah, um, just to go to the dentist. Yeah. So pretty interesting stuff. So I, I thought about covering Munchausen on here. I listened to a podcast episode recently on that and there was somebody who did something. They had, I want to say $5 million in, in surgeries in which they had almost all of their fingers and toes amputated for this Munchausen syndrome. Super interesting. Yeah, no, that would be a great, a great topic to cover for sure. So there are a couple examples of this type of false confession. Um, so in Casson's article on false confessions from 2014, he actually provides two specific examples. The first one being Elizabeth Short. She was an actress that was murdered in 1947, and more than 50 people confessed to committing the murder. So I, very, very seriously, 49 of those people. <laughs> oh, but statistically, at least 49 of those people were probably voluntarily false confessing. Right. Uh, another one that John Mark Carr confessed in 2006 to the murder of John Benet Ramsey, that little girl um, whose story I think still graces the front of tabloids every once in a while. Yeah. And uh, and also was uh, not actually guilty. Right. So so it does happen. Like it does come up and, and you see that there's so those are some pretty specific examples. And I'm sure there are far, far more examples of this type of thing, probably less severe or with less high profile cases. But it does happen quite a bit. Yeah. All right. So, so. the second type is called the compliant false confessions. And this is when um, people are induced to confess through the process of the interrogation, which is primarily what we've spent our time on so far during this one. And. And I'm actually really glad that we we broke him down in these categories because and I had I had made notes that I want to make sure we talk about all all facets of false confessions because false confessions can happen inside of these interrogation techniques and there are other reasons and one of them is the voluntary ones that we just talked about. However, this is going back to this type that is involves the interrogation technique specifically being used and oftentimes suspects confess in order to escape 
a stressful situation, avoid being punishment, or gain promise, uh, some promise reward that was offered to them during that process. So this type of confession is actually um, an issue with compliance, right? They're they're complying with authority. They're compli- They're also probably tired. There's all sorts of stuff that's coming out of it. But the part of the issue with this type of confession or this false confession is that the subject perceives that there are short that the short term benefits will actually far outweigh the long term benefits. So I just need to get out of the situation and go home and sleep. I am willing to risk that and just and to to contact that so that I can if I have to go to jail later, then I'll go to jail later. I just want to get out of the situation now. Yeah, and this going going back to that Kaysen's article, there was a case in 1989 in which a Central Park jogger was was accosted, we'll just say that. And after lengthy interrogations from five teenagers uh, from New York, all five of them confessed, um, which <laughs> seems like a lot. And they each they each claimed that they confessed because they expected that they would be able to go home afterward. And interestingly, all five were convicted somehow and sent to prison. Um, however, they were later exonerated in 2002. So after only 13 years in prison, uh, when the That's real all. yeah when the real rapist came forward and confessed, and uh, he was confirmed as the correct suspect through uh, testing with DNA evidence. Yeah, so so kind of going back to the beginning of the episode when we talked about how this can be harmful, like this is a perfect example. All these examples that we've gone over are examples of how dangerous false confessions can be and how problematic they can be, not only for the individuals who are com- committing those, the or like you know submitting those false confessions, but the the community at large. This this particular individual, the assailant in this situation, had gone free for thirteen years, and who knows how many crimes were committed in that time while. Five innocent young men were sitting in a prison for a false confession. Not doing anything productive with their lives at all. Right. Exactly. Ugh. Yeah. So so the third type of, of false confession is this idea of um, – it's called an internalized false confession. And so basically what this means is that innocent but actually uh, vulnerable suspects who are exposed to highly suggestive situations um, or interrogation tactics can eventually confess to a crime. But they also believe – that they are actually guilty of committing the crime. So they're convinced through the interrogation process that they have actually committed the crime, even though they weren't. They did they hadn't committed it. So there's an example of this. There was a 14-year-old boy named Michael Crow, and he was brought in for interrogation, being accused of stabbing his sister to death. He sat through lengthy interrogations. He was misled into thinking that there was substantial physical evidence of his guilt, and he concluded himself that he must have been the killer and was convinced that he had some kind of split personality disorder and he was just unconscious of the fact that he had killed his sister, and so he confessed to stabbing his sister to death. However, the, uh, it later was found that there was a, a drifter in the neighborhood who had his sister's blood on his clothing, um, and the charges were eventually dropped against Michael, although I can't imagine that that was an easy amount of psychological trauma to overcome, having believed that you uh, murdered your sister and and that you had split Ugh. personality disorder. Yeah, I feel, like, uh, I feel like it would be quite a process to come back from that. Yeah. Yeah. So we've kind of talked about the interrogation techniques that that are common. We've talked about some of the different types of false confessions and all that. So let's talk about the interrogation process and some more recent research to kind of orient you back to what's current, um, what's being found in the literature, and and kind of give you a better idea of what what lo- what it looks like in today's today's uh, interrogation community. Right. So typically. Before the interrogation takes place, there is a process by which information is gathered for the interview to attempt to determine whether the suspect is innocent or guilty, although I don't know that that's necessarily always made known to the suspect or made available to, available to them to, to know what the evidence is. Yeah. And then manuals are used in the interrogation process, and police are advised on the use of verbal cues, nonverbal cues, and behavioral attitudes to detect deception. So, so there is a little bit more training, and there are actual resources that are available that that kind of help set up the interview process or the interrogation process a little bit better than, say, some of those other techniques we discussed. Right. In 1999, Kaysen and Fong conducted a study in which they examined the performance of those individuals to receive training in the law enforcement method of law detection, and another group did not receive training. And students were assigned to watch videotaped interviews of suspects who were guilty or innocent. And similar to past studies, these observers could not differentiate between suspects who were guilty and those who were innocent. Also, those who received training were more confident, but they were actually less accurate and more biased towards seeing deception than those who were not trained. So 
turns out you're better coming in just with whatever you've learned in your lifetime and asking questions than you are being trained to try and detect it because you get more false positives. <laughs> Interesting. It'd be sort of like if you look up at the sky and you see something weird happen. If uh, if if you've been trained to detect UFOs, you're going to see UFOs. And if you have not, then you'll look up and say, oh, I wonder if that was a shooting star. Which it probably was. <laughs> Dig. Which it probably was. Yeah, exactly. In 2002, Meisner and Kazin conducted a follow-up study with these same videotapes of suspects. And experienced detectives displayed the same behavioral tendencies. They made prejudgments of guilt, appeared to be very confident in their decisions, but made frequent errors. So even experienced detectives with a lot of training and a lot of exposure to these types of situations still made regular errors. Yeah. Okay, so clearly there is a need to improve this idea of uh, human lie detecting and how that works. We talked a little bit about this in the polygraph episode. There have been some psychological scientists who have conducted some studies related to this area. And so, so far, some studies have shown that withholding crime details when conducting interviews and adding questioning could trap those who are guilty, but not those who are innocent, because only those who are guilty are going to volunteer evidence as part of their explanation that wasn't actually given to them originally, implying that they have knowledge of the events associated with the crime that they shouldn't otherwise have access to, and that being aware of the inconsistencies when those facts are disclosed can help investigators determine where there is falsehood or there is information that is being volunteered, maybe unintentionally. Interesting stuff. Yeah. Others have suggested that since lying requires more effort, it actually takes a lot of response effort to make that happen than telling the truth. Interviewers may actually distract the interviewee by having them tell their stories in reverse order. So um, what what ends up happening is this allows the interviewers to make judgments by attending to the effort cues, such as hesitation and kind of a delayed responses, delayed verbal cues and all that from the interviewee. Right. So like if I can't say the alphabet backwards, it's because I'm guilty. <laughs> Love it. So just <laughs> that's a great example. That's perfect. I just and it, I'm always skeptical when your technique is let's assume something and and see if and and then conclude that my assumption is correct and then we can all go home. And I don't know. So when like the reading body language thing and just interpreting that what they're saying is sort of hiding an underlying clue. Uh, that it's just hard for me to swallow that that's a a legitimate way of obtaining useful information. I think that the strategy of allow them to volunteer information in which they sh- they have knowledge about a subject they shouldn't have knowledge of is is actually that's a clever and useful way to go about it because th- in that case all you have done is set up the context in which they are filling in the holes they didn't know that they were filling in and that allows you to know more about their their level of involvement with that particular situation and that just yields more information and i also think that the yeah, i think we're also sort of getting into take take homes right now but I think that getting into that situation of uh, the the peace technique where you treat it more as a dialogue and give them op- an opportunity to provide a lot of information and gain clarity on the information is going to be a useful way. Now, obviously, you're going to get people who are not going to volunteer information that implies guilt. And that happens. And there's not necessarily a whole lot you can do. But that interview technique, I think, is best suited to allow people to volunteer as much information as possible to help then recruit that as legitimate non-coerced evidence and potentially give the investigators something to spend time actually looking into that they may not have known that they needed to look into. So that person, again, this goes to that like volunteering information they may not have intended to volunteer. And then that giving the people who are investigating this an opportunity to learn more about this case by uh, looking into that. Yep, absolutely. So take homes. Yeah. Uh, False confessions (laughs) happen. Yeah. They they happen for various reasons. The rating technique is coercive. So avoid doing that because you'll uh, likely result in some kind of uh, lawsuit. Yep. And the the peace technique is, well, I would say that the the kinesic technique is similar to the read technique, probably a little better at getting accurate confessions versus false confessions, but hard, hard to say necessarily. There's some, a little bit of that deception built in there. As far as false confessions go, with enough time and effort, uh, you too could be subject to submitting a false confession uh depending on (laughs) (laughs) depending on how much effort and uh and time is put into getting you to confess to something you didn't do yeah so hopefully 
if you're accused of something and you're not guilty, that you know to maybe look out for some of these things and and be able to accurately represent your position. And if you are guilty, then just confess. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Problem solved. (laughs) Everybody just tell the truth. It's fine. Sweet. Solve the world's problems. Everybody's going to tell the truth from now on. (laughs) There'll be no more need for politics. There you go. Brilliant. (laughs) All right. I think that's all we got. Yep. I think that wraps it. Cool. This is Abraham. And this is Shane. We are out. See ya. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.